I'd like to talk about this evening is silence. Meditation is a language of silence. In this journey, we are encouraged to let go of our words and our concepts to let go of our definitions and descriptions. We are suggested that all of the images and the judgments and the knowing that we possess really tend to clutter up the silence that is possible within us, the silence that is really a great source of wisdom of compassion, of realization. We are encouraged not to linger anywhere, not to dwell upon anything at all, so that a very profound and immense silence and awareness will be revealed to us. A silence which is not separate from anything, which excludes nothing, Every teaching informs us that the words that we so desperately hold on to in our minds can never really be a true description of anything at all. That the words and the descriptions that tend to flow through our minds, they're like reflections of the moon on the water, not to be mistaken for the moon itself. And so many of the words, so many of the descriptions that fill our consciousness are the very words that really lead us to mistake the unreal for the real, that lead us to become lost in opinions, in prejudice, in beliefs. Our very words sometimes lead us very directly into limited ways of seeing ourselves, of seeing other people, of seeing the world around us. So we come to this path, this environment, and we are really invited to immerse ourselves in silence. Not only the silence of the spoken word, but also the silence of not knowing, of not holding on to anything. And it's suggested again and again that to do this will be a way of opening a door to a landscape of really unending possibilities, to discover a quality of freedom which is not dependent upon anything, not conditioned by anything. It is suggested that to immerse ourselves in this silence will open a door to a way of being where we feel filled with a profound joy, a profound peace. In Zen, this quality of not knowing is called a beginner's mind. Suzuki Roshi described it. Our original mind includes everything in itself. It is always rich and sufficient in itself. 
You should not lose your self-sufficient state of mind. This does not mean a closed mind, but actually an empty mind and a ready mind. If your mind is empty, it is always ready for anything. It is open to everything. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. This invitation to silence, not only the spoken silence, the silence of not knowing, is not always an easy one for us to embrace because our words, our thoughts, our concepts, our descriptions are very important to us. They seem to represent safety to us. They offer us a world, inwardly and outwardly, which is familiar, which is known, which seems to offer us an appearance of of security and of definition. Everything has a definition. And I think sometimes we sense that in some way to to be deprived of all of this, to be deprived of all these definitions, all this knowing, would be a very fearful experience. Words are basically, and in words I speak about thoughts, definitions, and labels, They are basically the stage upon which the I dances. The ultimate security for us in life is believed to be be being able to say, I am, I have, and I know. Now sometimes we come into the verbal silence of a retreat and we greet it, we welcome it with a great sigh of relief because in some ways this verbal silence here, it allows us to drop so many burdens. It allows us to drop so much baggage. We are not asked to make a wonderful impression upon anybody. We're not asked to be a sparkling personality. We're not asked to earn the admiration of anyone. We're not asked to fill up uncomfortable moments with words. And this is often experienced with a wonderful sigh of relief. It seems logical that that silence would offer us a great deal of joy. But then many people do experience that the reality of this silence is often very different. In the verbal silence of a retreat, we lose a lot of things. We not only drop burdens, but we also tend to really lose things which previously we have relied upon for safety and for affirmation. In this verbal silence, it's a little bit like standing at the edge of a a pond of water on a windy day. And you get all these ripples that go across your reflection. So you don't see yourself often as you actually are. You tend to see instead all these distortions. And it's not always flattering to us how we see ourselves in the verbal silence of a retreat. Some ways we wake up to how much we actually rely upon the approval and the affirmation and the words of others to feel certain 
about our own acceptability, to feel certain about our own likability. Sometimes we see how much we rely actually upon being able to assert our credentials in the world, to know who we are. We have no one here applauding us, no one telling us what a wonderful person we are. No one says we are fine. We also appreciate in this silence, perhaps, how many thoughts and at times judgments and how many images we find ourselves constructing about other people. Now, you may have done this, you know, once or two, twice. And it is logical to assume that other people's minds are working in exactly the same way. But actually, we have no way to test that. We don't know. We don't know what other people think about us. We don't know if we're being admired for being a wonderful yogi. We don't know if people have really kind of already demoted us as a total failure. So we are left just with this ripply reflection in the pond. And we find our minds doing very funny things. We may find ourselves smiling at somebody as we pass them in the dinner queue or something, and they don't return our smile. Well, this could be the start of a terrible day. We feel devastated by their rejection, by feelings of rejection. We may just glance at someone in a very friendly way as we pass them in the hallway. And then it's not acknowledged. We get this stony look back or else they shift their eyes to the side and we start to wonder, how have we offended them? What have we done wrong? You know, is it bad vibes? Is it B.O.? We don't know what we have done to create such a reaction. We may find, and this is awful experience, that someone who was previously sitting beside us in the meditation room moves and sits somewhere else. Oh no, you know, do I twitch and shiver and quake? Do I snort? What it is what is it that I do? You know. We think it must be our fault. Why does the mind go through all these kind of dances and get itself into such knots? And it is because this verbal silence really deprives us of feedback. And so, in some ways, in many ways, it deprives us of certainty. We can no longer tell who we are by how others see us. We are actually asked to see ourselves through our own eyes. What a revelation! This may be a very unusual thing for us to do in our lives. But when we begin to try to see ourselves through our own eyes, often we see ourselves in such distorted ways. Not through the, any longer through the feedback of other people, but through the eyes of our conclusions, our likes, our dislikes, our standards. Sometimes we see ourselves through the eyes of authorities and people in our past. We see ourselves as being paranoid, as being judgmental, as being greedy, as being needy. All of these different images are reflected back to us in this silence. 
Silence leaves us with an inner world, an inner landscape. And it's in this inner landscape that we then begin to seek for the certainty and the reassurance that is no longer being offered to us by the external world. As we listen inwardly and as we explore inwardly, sometimes we feel really amazed and awed by the degree of noise that we can actually create within ourselves. Sometimes it is hard to believe that one small mind can have so many thoughts. It is so created, it never runs out of thoughts. If you notice, it never runs out of thoughts. Once on a retreat, someone said to me, you know, well, you know, there's got to be an end to this. (laughs) I'm just so tired of fighting my thoughts that I'm just going to sit here and think until they run out. (laughs) Well, 10 days later, she was just sitting there thinking and thinking and thinking and feeling, well, I've barely got started. (laughs) There are so many thoughts that it is possible to have. They just don't run out. It seems a miracle in a way that our mind can produce so much noise. And what is even more amazing is that usually we are actually not inviting it. We're not choosing it. How many of the thoughts that you had today did you actually choose? (laughs) Did you say, I'd like to think about this? You know, I'd like to reflect on this. How many of the thoughts that you had today did you actually invite? Probably a very small proportion. Instead, it seems that somehow our fate is to be a captive audience of a mind which is in love with itself. Now, when we listen inwardly, how much silence do we actually find? Sadly, it is often not very much. And we're also aware of how much energy all that thinking takes. You know, look at what we're doing here, really. I mean, this is the most restful kind of life, you know. I mean, how much more restful could we get unless we're in sort of deep sleep therapy? I mean... We're just sitting around, and in, uh, on occasion we take you know, a few steps down the driveway, and then we, <laughs> we come back and we sit around again. You know, I mean, really, how much more restful could it be? And look, at the end of the day, we can hardly drag ourselves to bed. <laughs> oh, so tired, you know, it's so exhausting. But really, I mean, realistic, if we look back on today, have we really done that much to make us so tired? No, of course we haven't, you know. What has made us so tired? It is all this thinking. It is all this struggle about thinking. It's all the resistance to thinking. It's all the trying not to think. It's all the obsession with thinking. It's all the preoccupation with all of those knots. It is wondrous. It is truly exhausting. We have heard that meditation is to bring peace. To bring serenity, to bring tranquility. And when we hear that, you know, we usually, well, we often think it must be somebody else's meditation that's being spoken about, you know, not mine. Now, really, what is all this noise about? 
what is all this busyness about? Why on earth are we doing this to ourselves? Why are we getting so tied up in knots? And actually, how much difference have the thoughts that we have had today made to anything at all? (laughs) I mean, it feels kind of a tragedy at the end of a day. (laughs) To have worked so hard and ended up with so little. And we sat there and thought all day, not one single resolution. (laughs) (laughs) Haven't got rid of anything, haven't gained anything, just one more day of thinking that we can chalk up. Well, a lot of this, what is it about? Much of it is the dance of fear. It is the dance of I and it is the dance of fear. It is the busyness of I looking for certainty looking for somewhere to find a refuge and a sanctuary, looking for somewhere to be safe. And it looks for somewhere to be safe in being able to say, I am, I have, and I know. Ideally, these, we would like to build a fortress out of these building blocks, an impenetrable fortress that we could inhabit with safety, where we could say with such certainty in our lives, I am, I have, and I know. But that certainty is so elusive. Certainty represents safety to us, and safety somehow we equate with happiness, with being protected. Now, we have, of course, in our lives, resigned ourselves, most mostly, that the outer world is simply unable to offer us this certainty. No matter how much we have, no matter how much we know, no matter how many credentials we have accumulated, in some ways it's still like living in a jungle. We could lose it all in a moment. We are never safe within those areas, and we know it. No, even you know, if we get ver- you know, after we get over being very excited about gaining something or succeeding in something or feeling proud in our ability to rearrange our world. You know, after those initial moments of excitement, so easily and so quickly again, we find ourselves bored, we find ourselves restless, we find ourselves feeling insecure again. Now this insight about the outer world and this lack of certainty doesn't mean necessarily that we relinquish our desire to control and to manipulate and to consume. Occasionally, we still make brief excursions into those strategies, but even as we do it, we tend to be aware of their futility. It is apparent, apparent through all of our life experience, through all of our understanding, that we simply cannot control. But it's hard lesson for us to learn. It's hard for us to give up that search for certainty. Instead, it tends to turn inwardly. That we make a trinity out of these three, of having, of knowing, of being able to say, I am. And this is what makes so much busyness. This is what makes our minds so busy. Busy moving towards things, busy moving away things, busy constructing identities, 
busy with strategies to get rid of things, busy with plans to attain things, busy with holding. We come here to this silence, and what do we have? We have a vehicle, the path, we have the external silence, and we have ourselves. We have an invitation to let go of this busyness, to let go of this demand for certainty, to open ourselves for not, to not knowing. We have an invitation to be still, to be listen, to listen inwardly, and to trust that out of that listening and out of that stillness come, will come all the wisdom all the understanding that we need to be free, to see the end of fear. It seems a simple and a wonderful invitation, but to the eye, to the sense of I, it is actually a recipe for disaster. It is not an invitation which offers us any guarantees, It's not an invitation which offers us any credentials. I mean, try to get a job on the basis of being not knowing. (laughs) It is not an invitation which offers us any certainty at all. It's no certainty. We would never say to someone beginning a retreat, you're going to go out of here a much wiser, more compassionate person. Don't know. Absolutely not know at all. It is no wonder, then, that in this lack of certainty, we find ourselves struggling so much. Even noise seems desirable. Noise seems more desirable than stillness, because at least it gives us something to do. A number of you have mentioned about the entertainment value of thoughts. It gives us something to do. Now, what is it that is frightening to us about this journey, about uncertainty? And it is really many things. You know, this journey is, in a sense, it is a journey of the spirit. It is a journey of mystical understanding. It's a journey of awakening. We can't measure that. We can't measure it in any way. Insight is not something which is immediately visible to us. And I longs for that which is visible, that which is tangible, that which can be beheld or possessed, that we can define ourselves by. This journey offers us silence, and I craves words and descriptions and definitions, because these are the marks by which we make our world familiar. Depth, change, discovery. There is no yardstick for this. There's no way it can be measured. And I longs for signposts, for yardsticks, for measurements, because without them, it seems, how do we even know how we're doing? How do we even know if we're progressing in this stuff? How do we even know if we're getting better? unless we have some signpost that is saying, aha, yes, this is a sign you're doing well. We are told that even this path, it's only a vehicle. It's only a raft to be let go of, a form not to be identified with. 
And what we see again and again in ourselves is we want to make institutions out of things. I'd like to read you a story. When the guru sat down to worship each evening, the ashram cat would get in the way and distract the worshippers. So he ordered that the cat be tied up during evening worship. After the guru died, the cat continued to be tied up during evening worship. And when the cat expired, another cat was brought to the ashram so that it could be duly tied up during evening worship. Centuries later, learned books were written by the guru's scholarly disciples on the liturgical significance of tying up a cat while worship is performed. Now, there are many ways that we try to tie up our own cat in meditation. We do it all the time with sittings, when we hold on to the last sitting, when we hold on to an image that has been constructed, when we hold on to signs and we hold on to experiences. We are tying up our own cat. Now, in this practice, of course, everybody knows that there's no such thing as a good sitting and a bad sitting. (laughs) You all agree with me. Now, we hear it many times that there is no such thing as a good sitting or a bad sitting. We all nod our heads wisely, and then we secretly believe that there is such a thing as a good sitting and a bad sitting, and that we clearly know the difference between the two. And a good sitting, according you know, to most people, is a sitting where we come in, bodies calm, minds calm, pays attention, there's not too much disturbance, there's not too much content, there's a level of uh, tranquility and attentiveness, and that's what we call a good sitting. Now, when we come in and have one of those so-called good sittings, we feel very pleased with ourselves, often very pleased with everybody. (laughs) And we also know about bad sittings. Now, bad sittings, of course, is when the knees ache and the eyebrows ache and everything aches and the mind wanders and there's lots of difficulties and struggles and, you know, everything feels like torture. Now, of course, when we have had a good sitting, you know, certainly the thought arises, if we're honest, that this is a good sitting, you know. Very rarely do we leave it just like that. Instead, we begin, of course, to have a little identification (laughs) with that thought. And we say, well, I'm not doing too bad. And I seem to be getting somewhere at last, you know, and I expect this is going to continue, and by the end of the retreat, I'll probably be up there, you know, giving the instruction. (laughs) And so, of course, when the next sitting comes around, as it does in these situations, we're in there with our institution waiting waiting for the good sitting to happen again. Often it doesn't, and we have what we call a bad sitting. Now, again, that the thought then comes, this is a bad sitting, which is usually followed by the thought, oh, no, I've blown it. I'm a failure. 
Everybody else can do it, not me. It's just like so many things in my past. You know, my mother was probably a failure at meditation, and my grandmother <laughs> runs in the family, you know, this inadequacy at meditation. And so, you know, and then we have, you know, projected into the future, and we have created an institution. Now, I would suggest that we do this with many things. We don't do this just with sittings. We do it with thoughts, with feelings, with memories, with images, with many things that we isolate. We create an institution for ourselves. We become institutionalized in those institutions. We become institutionalized when we have accepted those thoughts as being the truth as being our reality. We have tied up our own cats. Even when we seem to be, and we do that because those institutions, pleasant and unpleasant, they are offering identity. They are offering safety. And even it seems painful identities are easier to live with than no identity. Even when we engage in a great deal of doing to try and get rid of I, which appears such a problem, we tend to create another institution out of it. We say, I have a problem. I have a problem of I. We have created an institution out of a substantial entity out of something which is not substantial. And this is what identification and this is what grasping does. It creates static and frozen centers out of fluid and changing processes, out of fluid and changing phenomena. Static and frozen realities and centers are created through grasping. It is clear from our own experience, I believe, that grasping and identification is painful. No matter how gross, no matter how subtle clinging is, its inevitable offspring is pain. We know this. We don't need an expert to tell us this. Our whole life tells us this. The difficulty is that I don't actually believe it. I don't actually believe it. I, in some distorted way, perceives pain as pleasure. I perceives pain as pleasure. Even though all of us in our lives have experienced the effects of grasping in terms of loss, separation, failure, disappointment, disillusionment, separation, how much have I, don't take this personally, I, actually learned from? How much has the I actually learned the lesson? It often doesn't. Instead, what I does is that it, I perceive recovery from all of those painful experiences as being made possible through grasping hold of something else. That is how I perceive, how I perceive recovery from pain to grasp hold of something else, even when that pain has been caused by grasping. It is like a moth 
which is constantly attracted to the light or the candle flame which burns it. It gets burned, but it keeps coming back for another look at that flame. What I does is it equates pleasure with certainty and equates pleasure with security. And it sees security and safety and certainty as being made possible through grasping and identification. That is the process. Pleasure is certainty. Certainty is made possible through grasping and identification. Now, it is difficult. It may be possible that I is actually not going to learn the lesson that this is not true. That we need to ask. That I actually can't learn the lesson that security, that safety, that pleasure, that is dependent upon grasping and identification is nothing but pain. I maybe can't learn that lesson. It's reluctant to learn that lesson because to really learn that lesson would leave I with nothing to do. Would leave me with nothing to do. Where would I be if I was not grasping hold of something? When I, if I was not involved in the quest to know, to have, to become, it would be difficult to find me. Now, this is not so black and white, of course. We do learn from our life experiences. We, are, we learn in a way that we're not so easily deceived by desire and by resistance, and so there's less pain. We learn to not be so easily swept away by craving or by control, and there's more space. We develop inwardly in greater wisdom and greater de detachment. So our level of happiness is not so dependent upon, upon fulfilling desires. We do develop greater equanimity and greater compassion so that we are not so easily ensnared by judgment or by images or by resistance. All of this we can measure. All of, this we, all of these lessons we can measure in our lives. We see the changes inwardly and we see the changes in our lives. We see the transformations that are brought about through developing those qualities of mind which are more deeply rooted in understanding. To truly understand silence, to truly be at home within silence, to feel at ease in silence, we need to understand and to see clearly the language of I. It is very basic. It has a very elementary vocabulary, even though it produces endless camouflage. The language of I is concerned with pleasure and with pain. It is deceived by it. The possession of pleasure supports the I, I believe. The presence of pain threatens I. These two actualities fuel the dance of I, creates the busyness, the noise, the separation. The unfortunate tragedy is that I have misnamed pleasure as happiness, 
And this basic mistake is the source of most of the pain in our lives. I retreat from pain with aversion or suppression or distraction or denial or resistance, a movement which consumes so much energy. I seeks for the solution to pain in pleasure. We can see this in our experience here. When we are bored, how quickly I can find a fantasy. When there is an unpleasant mental state, how quickly I find a strategy to move away from it. When there is something unpredictable, how quickly I can find a way to make my world orderly. What we need to see is pleasure is just pleasure. It's not that we need to deny it or get away from it, but pleasure is just pleasure. It is not happiness. That no lasting happiness can be found in the realm of I am, I have, and I know. And this is the only territory that I can travel. The other evening I spoke about this path being the path of happiness, leading to the highest happiness, which is peace. And that quality of peace has nothing to do with the presence or the absence of the pleasant or the unpleasant. Peace is in non-grasping. That is where peace lies, true happiness lies in non-clinging, in non-grasping. Only through the cessation of clinging do we cease to be conditioned to what we cling to. This is very important for us to understand. Only in the cessation of clinging do we cease to be conditioned and molded by what we cling to. If If we grasp hold of a thought that is what I become, If we grasp hold of a judgment that is what I become, that molds and shapes and flavors my reality in that moment. If I grasp hold of an opinion, it molds my way of seeing in that moment. If I grasp hold of a mind state, it becomes my reality. This is what the process of conditioning is. It takes place on a moment-to-moment level. It's not a life sentence conditioning. It takes place on a moment-to-moment level through grasping. We cannot make deals with grasping. We cannot say, I will only grasp hold of that which brings pleasure, of that which creates positive realities for me, or positive identities for me. You can't negotiate with grasping. Grasping has no respect for negotiations. Where there is grasping, it will grasp hold of the pleasant or the unpleasant. These are the realities then that we find ourselves imprisoned by. In the cessation of clinging, we cease to be molded. We cease to be conditioned by objects, by thoughts, by mental states, by feelings. We know the end of knowing and having and becoming. This is the highest happiness. This is the deepest peace. Now I would like to read to you. What should the mind dwell upon? It should dwell upon non-dwelling. 
what is non-dwelling? It means not dwelling upon anything whatsoever. What does that mean? Dwelling upon nothing means that the mind doesn't remain with good or evil, being or non-being, inside or outside, emptiness or non-emptiness, concentration or distraction. This dwelling upon nothing is the state in which it should dwell. Those who attain it are said to have non-dwelling minds. In other words, they have Buddha minds. As long as your mind dwells upon nothing, there is nothing you can attach yourself to. If you want to understand the non-dwelling mind very clearly, be aware only of the mind and make no judgments, not thinking in terms of good, bad, or anything else. A mind that dwells upon nothing is the Buddha mind, enlightenment mind, uncreated mind. It is also called realization that the nature of all appearances is unreal. It is what the sutras call patient realization of the uncreated. When you finally understand, your mind will be free from both delusion and reality. A mind that is truly free has reached the state in which opposites are seen as empty. This is the only freedom. (coughs) Non-dwelling is not some arrival point we reach at the end of this path. Non-dwelling is not an attainment. It's not a goal. It's not some fulfillment of a spiritual journey. Non-dwelling is the path. Non-dwelling is the journey. In relationship to every thought, in relationship to every sound, in relationship to every image. And to truly see that is also to see that non-dwelling is silence. It excludes nothing, but it wants nothing. It separates itself from nothing, but it holds everything. It is truly silence. May all beings live with clarity. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings live with compassion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.